loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming back Bart Windrum. Bart became activated as a citizen end-of-life reformer after experiencing the hospitalized deaths of his parents in 2004 and 2005. His 208 book, Notes from the Waiting Room, Managing a Loved One's End-of-Life Hospitalization, examined what happens throughout terminal hospitalizations and was a 2009 Colorado Book Awards finalist. During 2012-2013, Bart presented a TEDx talk to Die in Peace, New Terms of Engagement, wrote, arranged, and performed the Never Say Die rap, published the article, It's Time to Account for Medical Error in Top 10 Causes of Death Charts, in the Journal of Participatory Medicine, and created a unique end-of-life visioning tool that models our dying territory. Windrum's Matrix of Dying Terms, uh, I'm sorry, our dying territory, well, that's called Windrum's Matrix, Matrix of Dying Terms. Bart's new book, The Promised Landing, A Gateway to Peaceful Dying, completes a unique end-of-life lexicon dedicated to identifying and examining prevalent personal and systemic obstacles to dying in peace and at peace, and we'll talk more about the difference in a minute. This work addresses aspects of preparing for late life in the early 21st century that traditional guidance from medicine and spiritualists don't address. Welcome back, Bart. Hi, Cheryl. Hi. Uh, Just for the listeners' information so they can go look it up, you were on my show about three years ago to talk about your first book, and now here we are to talk about your second. But on the chance that uh, people didn't hear that first interview, I'd I'd like to go back because, of course, um, at the heart of this show is the kind of things that end up um, captivating us in our lives after loss. And so I'm hoping you can talk a little about the loss of your parents and how that propelled you to where you are now. I can. And, um, and for, you know, I'll have to be a little brief on, you know, the details because, you know, we could spend an hour. Right. Absolutely. But in in my case, in both of my, in both of my parents' uh, instances, their deaths were, in hindsight, relatively short. They were unexpected terminal hospitalizations that cropped up on us um, immediately. Uh, my mom had respiratory failure and wound up intubated in an ICU, which was a completely compassionless environment. And, um, and we embarked on a course of treatment that was futile, but even though we were a small, cohesive, advanced plant family who did a lot of talking together, um, we were just all stunned, and you know, we just proceeded because we didn't think she'd go first. We all thought Dad would. And just 15 months after that, uh, Dad went in for pacemaker eligibility testing. It was nuclear due to his severely degraded heart with two prior double bypasses over, a, I don't know, 10 or 15-year period. 
Now, he wanted to see if he could move back out to Colorado to finish his life here uh, with his immediate family rather than his cousins or my cousins. And he crashed medically under the stress that was induced, you know, chemically in his bloodstream. He wound up admitted to the hospital and catheterized, whereupon he contracted a cauti, a catheter-associated um, urinary tract infection, which since that, those, that time, you know, what, 14 years ago, has become known as a quote-unquote never event that Medicare doesn't want to pay hospitals for. Um, and he died as a result of that, the complications as a result mm. of that. Um, and I was in my early 50s uh, during those years. And we were all pretty shocked and stunned by the nature of our experiences. And as you and I discussed back then, um, one of the things I identified while I was trying to sift through it all, uh, both during the events and, and for the years afterwards, was uh, you know, I made a distinction between the intrinsic nature of loss and dying, which is just because we're humans on planet Earth, and the unnecessary extrinsic additional shocks and the harm they deliver because of all sorts of things, our own denial and the state that puts us in, the defaults that medicine operates under, and the commingling of all of us in that milieu. Uh, you know, it's a big mess. And, but there's mm. all this stuff that's unnecessary, and I knew that at the time. So the, the grief that I wound up feeling was sort of multi-layered. Uh, you know, of course, the personal grief that we all feel. Um, and then, because I had vowed to do something about the scene, I just sensed that there was a whole lot of missing input that we all deserve. And what I promised myself back then was that as I began to ask and answer questions and make, try to make sense and untangle uh, our experiences, not once, but twice, yes. uh, with different medical trajectories and in different facilities and all that, that if it wasn't in the world, I would bring it forth. And it's actually taken me 14 years to complete what I wound up calling uh, my end-of-life lexicon or worldview or the sense that I made of all of this. And, and, and part of that has to do with that other layer of tending to grief, which is the grief that all of us collectively experience. And it's, it's pretty needless, actually, that collective layer of grief. Uh, well, uh, I think you're saying, and I, I want to make it explicit and talk a little more about it, that when things that um, that we might think are uh, don't have to be that way, it could have gone better, you could have known more, you know, all those things, that does really mm-hmm. impact grief. And especially in terms of, um, uh, you know, I've, I've been kind of lucky to... Uh, uh, dubious lucky but really lucky actually to experience some very uh the kinds of deaths that i think you're trying to encourage us towards where um it's it's clear what ought to happen next and everyone's on board with it and there's a piece to it to the actual Mm -hmm. dying process and uh but i've worked with many 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 people who've had very complex uh, deaths more like your parents. And I would say it really complicates their grief 
because they uh, they feel guilty, they feel like they failed. Uh, there are all kinds of things that come along that aren't simply about losing some someone. And I wonder if that rings a bell for you. Was was it hard to negotiate the extra emotions that come along with those kinds of mistakes and messes, as you're calling them, you know, in the medical system? Uh-huh. Um, yes. Um, it has been. But that's periodic. But it, it's been a consistent um, aspect, if you will, of what I dedicated myself to. And, and so there are two parts of that aspect. One is, you know, periodically revisiting some of the details. And, of course, you know, because these memories linger. In fact, I don't think they ever go away. I, I refer right. to them sometimes as, as technicolor. Uh, that, Otherwise uh, known as traumatic. You know, yeah, <laughs> yes. right. You know, it's, it's a, as a welling, an upwelling of grief, of sadness and sorrow and, and some tears, uh, for the 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 mistakes, you know, for and and for what we wish was but wasn't, and, but the other part of it, I actually want to read a, a, a short section from the acknowledgement section of this book, The Promised Landing. Um, Absolutely. I go a little further than I did earlier. I actually devote fairly long paragraphs to acknowledging a range of people whose whose input over the years was fundamental and ultimately. Um, resulting in this work, which is, uh, I think, the complete expression and culmination of everything I've tried to do since 2004. And this is a, an acknowledgement section of my parents. Um, their end-of-life landings, about which I have been unendingly regretful, have inadvertently given birth to this body of work, my end-of-life lexicon. I have envisioned the state of being necessary to bring this lexicon forth as standing on a cold dock in a thick fog, holding the rusted chain of a hulking ship floating on deep waters in a narrow location. The ship represented my parents and my memory of them. The chain, the connection I had to maintain in order to develop my thoughts. The fog the emotional aspect such persistent connection precipitated, and the constricted environs, the solitary construct in which my agitation and restlessness produced this work. So that's what it's been like for me personally um, to, to engage in this beyond the experience of it. You know, some number of we civilians now, we've been, you know, as a society sort of looking at becoming quote-unquote death literate for about a generation, and there are more and more of us civvies uh, saying, okay, I have something to offer about this, and I'm going to do it. Right, right. And, uh, and that's, for me, you know, upon reflection of these, you know, one, one and a half decades, what it's, you know, sort of been like to... To maintain the the connections to the events uh, in a persistent manner in order to do this, and and the final thing I want to offer about this, there's there's a lot of value placed today on our stories, and stories can be inspirational 
but I don't really know how instructional they ultimately are. And I might be an outlier on this. It's not an unusual place, you know, to find myself. But my story, the value of my grief and what I've done with it is not the story that, oh, this guy transmuted his feelings into this body of work, these books, this lexicon. The value of my grief is what's contained in the books and the lexicon, right? Someone hears the story that Bart had a couple of crummy deaths and he did some work around them. That might inspire somebody somehow, but it doesn't help anybody with their own future deaths in their families. But the work, the books, they are tools. That's the value. And really, my books are my story. Well, so I, I think I'm going to uh, jump off a bit and see if you can go along with me on this um, okay. uh, story, which is at, at the heart, this, this show we're on at the moment is stories of what came out of grief. Yes? Uh, okay. <laughs> different for every person what came out of grief, but uh, something came out of it. So mm-hmm. to me, uh, you were inspired out of that to create a particular view of how to support people dying. Uh, I would say story does instruct, but it depends what you're trying to instruct people for. Uh, for instance, inspiration is a kind of instruction. Oh, people do get through this, you know, that kind of thing. But what yeah, I hear yeah. in you is you really wanted to create a body of work that would be almost uh, a guide for people, no matter what their story, they could contemplate how they how they could engage with end of life and influence it. They could contemplate that in kind of an organized way. Does that fit for you as, yes, as what came out of it for you? Mm-hmm. So let's, yeah. let's move to that now because, um, you know, I, I, I guess because I experienced a very protracted period of uh, living with someone ill and contemplating the way the possible ways she could die and therefore the ways anyone could die um, I've contemplated those things quite a lot but most people haven't um, and but what strikes me about your lexicon which I have right in front of me actually is this the um, work you did to specifically identify death scenarios I think it's really, really helpful because, of course, advanced directives and all that uh, pretty much focus on one sort of death. Uh, you know, a, a plain assign, assign uh, yourself to someone to take care of you at the end kind of thing when you can't is mostly one kind of death, uh, cataclysmic, sudden, etc. So could you share with people... Uh, as much as you would like about these different ways to die and uh, how you came to think of them because both your parents died in a particular way, but you expanded it to all different ways, ways to die. Yes. Yes, I have. So this is going to be a long answer and feel free to interrupt if, uh, if you're so moved. Um, and and, and you never know, it may even go to the next 
the next time, but I think this is very cru- a very crucially important part of um, you know what what you've done in the book. So we'll get started, and then we'll probably continue after the break. So go right ahead. Okay, um, I'm going to start by simply saying a couple of things that will make sense before we are done together. Uh, in in January 2004. My family experienced uh, my mother's death in a particular way, which I have come to call suspended dying under machine control within the medically managed, progressed time frame. And 15 months later, my family experienced my dad's demise as erroneous dying under medical control within the abrupt time frame. And that devolved to end-state dying within the medically managed end-stage time frame. So I've named three of 17 dying situations there, suspended, erroneous, and end-state. And here's what happened. And I, I didn't ask specifically for this. I'm standing in the exact spot in my garden-level basement home office, which is an undivided space, the bottom floor of my townhome. And one quadrant of the space is what I call the theater zone. We have love seat and recliners and a big screen TV and a, a round marble table. And I was just standing around here, which I don't normally do. I normally sit at the computer working, and I just needed a break, and I was standing around. And all of a sudden, this thought dropped into my head, completely unbidden. And the thought was exactly this. Eskimos have a zillion words for snow. How come we have only one word for dying? Mm. And I said to myself, huh? (laughs) What is this? And I, I immediately recognized that this was significant. And if I were to reconstruct it in, in a proper, quote-unquote, proper way, it would be the Inuit people have many words for snow. Why do we uh, Caucasians have only one non-euphemistic word for dying? And that word, of course, is dying. So yes. I called a friend of mine who some of us, some of your listeners may know, um, you and I know, um, you met her, Jennifer Ballantyne who now runs the palliative uh, education program in uh, the San Diego campus of a, of a California university whose name I don't remember because I don't live in California. Uh-huh. But Jennifer was a, a colleague, an old friend of mine uh, from Colorado. And as you know, she's amazing. She knows so much and, and so many things. She's really smart. She has a, a mind like a, like a trap. She holds all kinds of details, and she knows everybody and everything that's going on in the palliative and hospice world. So I called Jennifer, and I said, has anybody worked this issue that you know of regionally, nationally? And she said, no. So I decided to. And, huh. and it was so weird. So now I want to jump to what you said, because you used the words, you know, the various ways we die. And, and people can get confused real easily about this. You know, as, as any listeners are starting to realize, this is not, what I'm doing and presenting here is not common stuff. It really is, you know, a, a different slant on this thing. It, it ways mean, you know, kind of implies circumstances. You know, this illness or that illness, you know, the, the overhaul co- the cohesion of a family relationship or the myriad of details and circumstances. What, what I'm looking at is the situations 
in right. which we die. Right? And so, for instance, jump around Let's, a little I'm going to stop you there, work. Bart. Bart, that's okay. a good place to take the break so that you can just really go into that when we come back. Um, and okay. listeners... You'll, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. I want to remind you that I've also just published a novel. It's about a mother and daughter trying to heal from a break in their relationship when the daughter is diagnosed with cancer. And there's a link to that on the host page of Good Grief. Uh, if you'd like to find Bart Windrum, you can go to axiomaction.com. Back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Today's woman faces a stressful world when it comes to staying healthy. We are bombarded by media messages with contradicting ideas about fitness and nutrition. We need to keep our diet, relationships, and stress in check. It's time to get the right message and have the most fun. Join hosts Andrea Beeman, Lisa Lutan, and Michelle Fenighouse for Healthy View Radio. It's health and happiness in one show every Thursday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Relationship issues, anxious, parenting challenges, no more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Bart Windrum about his book, The Promised Landing, and his work on uh, defining the situations in which we die. And I I appreciate your clarification before the, the break, Bart. Absolutely, your book is about the circumstances in which we die as opposed to the way we die, which could be a little confusing. I can see that. Um, but can you uh, continue on talking about uh, you know, your system of defining those situations and um, 
kind of helping people to think about uh, their their responses to those possibilities? Yes, I can. And I'm glad also you mentioned the word responses. We should be sure to cover the guided recitation at some point. But to answer the next question, uh, I'm going to read another paragraph. Um, and it has to do with the genesis of this thing, which I came to call our dying territory, which has a formal name, which I'll, we'll get to. But here, here's the, the, the excerpt. In fact, a range of dying situations lies in front of us. The dictionary defines a situation as a, quote, state of affairs and lists circumstances as a synonym. I prefer, I prefer more precise distinctions when discussing end-of-life matters. In my view, circumstances are the myriad details of our lives. Dying situations are made of many circumstances. Our particular ailments or diseases, temperaments and tolerances or intolerances, family relations, finances, history, and so on. Add in the personalities and systems that make up the non-us part of the situation. For example, the medical system with its never-say-die default orientation and government regulations that shape medical practice. Together, all the circumstances become a situation in which we could find ourselves. Situations that we collectively imagine that are part of our zeitgeist have become ingrained in our psyches as scenes. And here I'll just aside say those, the classic two or three are all wired up in the ICU. That's a situation that has become a scene in which we envision ourselves. Dying at home, which is supposedly lovely and wonderful, but actually requires a whole lot of resources that we may not have. Or languishing in a nursing home, right? Um, and so those are... Those are examples. Well, of and uh, I, I think one one that many people love a lot is dying in our sleep. Yes. Well, there's <laughs> that too, but that's actually, yeah. and that's where we start in the matrix. As you I know, don't love that one myself, but I know many people do. <laughs> Here, I want to finish the quote because it's important. Okay, so yes. situations that we collectively imagine part of our zeitgeist have become ingrained in our psyches as scenes and a corollary. Situations for which we have no names do not enter our psyche at mm. all, nor do they enter our thinking, our conversations, and certainly not our planning and resolve. And that's why I developed this thing called our dying territory. So I asked this question, this, this question fell into my head, why do we only have one word for dying? And then I said, well, maybe we should have more. And if we should have more, what should they represent? And how on earth do we go about creating those names? Or it's not, it's not, it's not so much a, a creation because we're not making something new. We're not imagining something that doesn't already exist. We're taking situations we have already experienced and haven't thought to name and stepping back and saying, maybe if I apply a name to these different situations and I come up with a, a pair of parameters by which I can distinguish one situation from the next, that will help me parse my own planning. It'll help me do what medicine exhorts us to do. It'll help me go beyond filling out an advanced directive, as tough as that is and say, oh, really, really, in our society, given the way we are set up, 
this crazy system that we have. If I want to aim for one situation and aim to avoid another situation, maybe it would be useful if we gave them names so we can start to distinguish between them. You know, it's interesting so that's, because... That's the genesis of yeah, this thing. Uh, yeah, and that, uh, it's interesting because uh, I had a, a peculiar or different problem with filling out an advanced directive. Most people are kind of holding their nose and doing it really quick and trying not to think about it and then it's done. My problem was the opposite, that it isn't exact enough. And I think that speaks to what you're talking about, figuring out how to describe what I wanted, given the fact that I didn't know what circumstance it would be, what what situation I'd be in, was really difficult because because I work in, you know, I watch a lot of people die, right? <laughs> so, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but both are equally difficult um, problems with that. Let me just be clear. People should do that because it's at least a little something, but it's not complete. And uh, so are we talking also a little bit about our willingness to actually engage with the fact that we will die? Because if you can't do that, you're never going to consider 17 ways it might happen in depth. Would you agree? Well, I have... Yes, yes, and yes, and yes, and I still have to be careful with language. I suspect that part of you is still talking and thinking in terms of circumstances and ways we die rather than the situations in which we find ourselves. And any number of circumstances and ways we die can be contained within that situation. You know how I say it? We bring our circumstances with us to situations which have their own circumstances and we take our circumstances away with us when we leave. So the situations are constant. They're uh, like I, 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 I hear what you're saying, but I think I, it may be a language issue because what, what I'm talking about is um, uh, very similar to what you're saying. Um, however, for instance, I work in cancer. So one p- in that particular disease, uh, certain ones of your uh, situations are more likely. That mm-hmm. it's not that all of them couldn't potentially happen in that uh, in that illness, but they're a little more likely, let's say. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think not to leave the listeners behind, let's get a little more into, uh, you know, I'm looking at your, at your lexicon right now and, uh, I just want to describe it from a completely, um, uh, not you point of view, right? Somewhat hey, like, great. I'm ready. Like somewhat like listeners would. And then I, I want to know if I've, if I've captured what you're talking about. So on on the left you have uh, who's in charge of what's happening? Is it the world or the universe? Is it the medical system? Is it a machine? Is it us as persons, or is it shared somehow? Then across the top you have abrupt dying, which I, I guess that's uh, uh, unexpected, no, no build up, all of that. 
medically managed dying. So that means in order to be medically managed, there has to be a diagnosis and then a progression. But people could die at the beginning of that, the middle or the end. And then you have never-ending dying, which I found a very interesting expression since, of course, everyone does die, so no death is never-ending. But you're talking about sort of protracted uh, disallowing of a, of a death that would have happened without intervention, typically. Would you like to add anything to uh, those parameters that, you, that you've described here? Yeah, I'm going to add several things very quickly. Um, because this can be so abstract, um, I'm going to offer a URL if any listeners are safely in front of a, of a computer or device and wanted to take a look at this matrix of dying terms. Um, you can go to axiomaction.com and then slash dying-territory. And I've added to this page only for this interview uh, the matrix. It's called Windrum's Matrix of Dying Terms. And that's the technical name of this thing. The user-friendly name is called Our Dying Territory, and I'll explain that in a minute also. So, Cheryl, what you have just described is totally accurate. And as I began trying to answer this question, right, the zillion words for snow, how come we don't have more words for dying? I thought, well, how do I answer this? And I, I sat down with, with a spreadsheet in front of me. I opened Microsoft Excel, right, because it was easy. And I said, what are the factors, the general immutable factors that shape anyone's dying? And to me, the answer was the passage of time and who or what controls the situation. Mm. So those are the parameters, um, those two things, control and time. And where can, so now you have a table or an array, if you will, of cells, right? And where the rows and columns intersect, any of those intersections, each box, I wound up calling a landing, right? As in, hey, when the game's over, where are we going to You're land? landing somewhere, yes. <laughs> That's right. So, and I'll, I'll append to that. Uh, another piece, so people understand where this title came from, the promised landing, right? has to do with the promises we make ourselves. And I think uh, this is an important point. It's just a little cul-de-sac. I won't spend much time here. But over the time that we've all striving to become death literate, you know, there are a lot of promises, implicit, explicit. And just like I said earlier, that the, the intrinsic pain and extrinsic pain, well, guess what? Now we're all saying, I don't want to experience what my mom did. I don't want to experience that, that type of situation again. In fact, I'm vowing no more in my family. And now we have the possibility of a third level of pain. And I called it promise pain. Because mm-hmm. in my view, we don't yet have the knowledge, the tools to increase our likelihood of dying peacefully. We have to go way beyond advanced directives and assigning novice proxies and way beyond spiritual engagement. As, as important and useful as both those things are, if we don't take a hard, sober look at the impediments and the obstacles in front of us because they are embedded in the world we live in, they're going to they're gonna grab us, Right. The, the other factor, the other factor I was so aware of, I was thinking about my own mother, 
And uh, two years before she died, she had a catastrophic um, hemorrhage. She should have died. And she didn't. And it was sort of by accident that they even went ahead and did surgery and all of that. Uh, Not by accident, but it was kind of that rolling train that you're talking about in the book, you know, where it, it, uh, but she recovered. Okay. Two Uh years later, she uh, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, did some treatment, but then she herself said, I, I like to say my mom died of traffic. She didn't want to cross the bridge for treatment anymore. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and she suspended it, went on hospice and had a had a at home. Uh, she did have the resources to have care and help. And we lived nearby, you know, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Quite a peaceful. Now, if she had died the first time, I would have had to forgive myself for uh, the the all stops ICU um, situation she she was in for a time. Mm-hmm. As it turned out, she didn't die. So some of it is also it's hard to tell what the right thing is at a given moment, and you do the best you can. But what I like about your uh, uh, your system here is that it gives a, the more we think about it, the more likely we are to be able to interact with it in a way that improves our experience. You know, um, that yes. Yes, you are and? absolutely right. And I think at this point, let me just present several, two, maybe three names of dying situations that, that I wound up uh, assigning. Great. We have a couple of minutes before the break, so it might be one, but let's see how far we get. Okay. I had a blank table in front of me, and it took me three months to fill it in, and ultimately I realized that I needed non-charged, simple descriptors. That's all. Hopefully one word, descriptive term, that would express, here's the key, each name expresses the nature of our experience with a loved one dying in this particular situation. So wow. in sleep is real simple, right? We die in our sleep. Right. right? That's, that's an uber simple one, and it's user-friendly. It's not very threatening, and that's where we start. Another one is suspended dying. That's a, that's a pretty rough one. And actually, um, it comes from medical anthropology, a study that was done and written up in a book called And a Time to Die, How American Hospitals Shape the End of Life. And so suspended dying, typically, you're in the ICU, intubated for some number of weeks. It's not so far as they have to give you a tracheostomy, but you're, you're pretty darn close at that point. And if you yes. find yourself in, those, in that situation for two to three weeks, short time in hindsight, an eternity while you're living it or dying it, and, and the term is suspended dying, and what you describe... Uh, your, uh, just described a few minutes ago, I would call collaborative dying, right? Under shared control. Yes. Distinct from suspended dying under machine control. And even the words begin to paint a picture, and maybe, maybe we have a visceral feeling when we hear those words. Yes. I, I think you really captured 
the the direction these situate you know you go in describing these situations and that gives our listeners some sense of you know what we're doing here um, but it is yeah, time for the yeah. break and uh, listeners of course during the break you can go find me at the at the Good Grief host page or on my on my website weatheringgrief.com and you can find find Bart Windrum at axiomaction.com be back after the break Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Ready to transform your health and your world? Join host Melissa Alexander for Insight Living with Vitality. Melissa and her guests go behind the scenes on what it takes for practitioners and clients to transform themselves and others. She provides insight to medical procedural breakthroughs, available product resources, and explains lifestyle choices designed to improve and expand your vitality. It's time to get rid of that baggage, remove those blockages, and prevent buildup from hindering your progress in life. Tune in every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent, inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm with Bart Windrum, author of The Promised Landing. And I, I know I'm go- we're going to be leaving listeners wanting because uh, there are 17 of these uh, landings that you've identified. And they wouldn't be completely um, unimaginable to people. But I think the way that you're you're capturing what's impacting the situation is quite helpful. And I know you wanted to let people know how they can kind of interact with all 17 and try them on a bit. Do you want to share that with the listeners before we move forward? 
Yeah, I do. This is a pretty unique aspect of it that occurred to me over some years' time. I, when conducting live workshops, I lead a group through a guided recitation, as I call it, and we all speak together, right? It takes a village, and it's amazing to sit in a room together and, and begin reciting together in a simple statements, right? But where it's ownership. I might experience in sleep dying. And then I offer a disc- some reflections on what that might be about for us, positive or negative. We each have a different response to it, right? I might experience suspended dying. I might experience collaborative dying. I might experience peaceless dying. I might experience peaceful dying. And in terms of the book, and it, you know, the book has nine chapters. It's about a third of the, uh, of the book um, that really lead everybody through this tool, our dying territory, step by step. And it culminates in vignettes that exemplify each vignette one at a time and then finalizes in the guided recitation, which can be read. And for readers of the book, I don't publish this except in the book, there's a link to a page on the website that has an audio file. And you can recite along with me. It takes about a half hour to do. So it's a way to get our, out of our heads because when we say it and we own it, whether we're alone or especially with a group, we have a visceral response. We take it in in a completely different way. And the point of this is to stimulate us to say, okay, I think I really do need to go beyond that advanced directive and proxy assignment and, uh, and beyond the spiritual work that I'm doing to really do the brave work of looking head on at the obstacles in front of us. And I do, I do feel, uh, I did listen to, to it, by the way, in preparation for today, and I think it's very helpful in kind of trying on things, you know, mm-hmm. putting ourselves yeah. in, the, in the situation for a moment, even if it's only a moment. Uh, I think that is, you know, in terms of grief, I prepared a lot. Even though I couldn't be prepared, I imagined <laughs> you know, and and that did, in fact, have a big impact after my wife died, the fact that I had imagined. So I'm all for that, for sure. Um, so I hope people will go look at that. But before we get out of here, I just really want to talk about um, obstacles. One, of course, is just what we're talking about you know, trying on things, figuring out where we stand about things. Uh, for instance, when I was recently finally completing, uh, I don't know, a year or so ago, a very uh, lengthy advanced directive for myself, I realized that uh, several years ago I would have just, uh, you know, said, uh, if I'm gone, unplug me kind of thing. But when I thought about more deeply, I realized, no, my kids need to get it. They need to have a chance to come if they want to leave me plugged in until we until they get there. They happen to live in other places. Now, that was from thinking a little longer. Right. Actually envisioning if I were in that state, uh, what would be important to the people I love? I, it couldn't have happened quickly. Does that so? That's sort of an example, I think, where if people try this on, uh, that's one obstacle uh, that begins to be removed. This kind of lack of imagination and and um, 
information about ourselves and the situation, yes? Would you like to mm-hmm. talk about some of the others, though? Because I thought some of them were pretty interesting, these obstacles yes, that I you will. talk in about fact, in the I'm book. I'm going to read the list of seven, but first, as an intro to it, I simply want to say this. We have a particular and a peculiar end-of-life milieu these days. And comparatively, back in the old days, before this wonderful technological medicine that does so much good for us, um, imagine a, a, a diagram with five gears, and they're all touching each other, right? So one gear spins, they all spin. And the top two gears are the elemental aspects of dying, right? And that's all that existed in the old days. That's existential preparation and actually dying. That's, ah. it. that's what you did, right? The old Arts of Dying book. And now, our modern-day guidance, there are two gears on the bottom, right? And one gear is directives and conversations and proxies, and the other gear is spiritual elevation. And by the way, the point of that is to bolster our equanimity and resolve, right? And we have a whole hell of a lot to resolve about because all that is contained in the middle gear, and that's our focus. The middle gear is... is contains all these obstacles to dying in peace that are part of the system that we are all part of, too. So here are the obstacles. The first one is difficulty distinguishing among dying situations. And if, like I, like I read earlier, if we fail to distinguish, we can't imagine, then it doesn't enter our psyche, it doesn't enter our conversations, our planning, or our resolve, and therefore... We can't see further than the nose in front of our face and the likelihood of getting ensnared in these situations and then trying to extract ourselves from them is way high. Okay? Sure. That's the first obstacle. The other six are trouble determining when enough is enough. There is actually something that occurred to me that can guide us into assessing whether enough heroic medical treatment is enough. Uh, obstacle to three, and these are sequential, by the way. I've, I've, I've oriented these, you know, in, in, for a particular reason. Uh, third is over-reliance on advanced directives. So they lead one to another, right? These three are personal obstacles. Difficulty right. distinguishing among dying situations. Trouble determining when enough is enough. Then if we can't do that, we get, we say, well, our directives will keep us, you know, from harm and all like that. Phew, we took care of that. <laughs> Whoa, yeah. Now... <laughs> That leads us, like, like, like cars on a train, leads us to a next three obstacles. Exposure to medical snafus, which are misadventures and or medical errors. Right? Misadventures are basically errors of judgment, whether they're our own or our doctors or our families. And medical error speaks for itself. Um, it's a risk, risk factor. If we find ourselves that far along... Obstacle five is ignorance regarding life support matters, including systemic overrides. And in my first book, Notes from the Waiting Room, I have something like a 20 or 30 page chapter that drills into life support matters and systemic overrides. It's, it's, it's huge and it's very painful stuff if you get caught up in it. Um, the sixth obstacle is the inability to advocate medically for a loved one or oneself. And I can't even say how huge this is. Um, and I, I do say up front in The Promised Landing that once you're done with this book, and even if you go back to my first book, which I do recommend, Notes from the Waiting Room, you still have more reading and more work to do. And, and Katie Butler's forthcoming book, um, The Art of Dying Well, 
uh, should be uh, a real good addition to our I'm looking you know, forward to that book on. a lot. I'm really looking yeah, forward yeah, to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she's so smart and she knows so much, so many details about stuff. It, it's amazing. Uh, so actually, Promised Landing, I like to say, whether Kate, I have no idea how Katie will feel about this, but I think Promised Landing is a great bridge so, to her yes. book, which is coming out and, next year. And we're almost out of time, so let's let's get to number seven, The Opaque Dying Experience. I mean, Marketplace. The Opaque Dying Marketplace. That one and, really and that, stuck out to me. That one and, occurred to me. You know, here uh, it is. Medicine tells us to to ponder all this stuff, to do this advanced planning, and then they basically say, well, okay, now that you got your directive and your proxy, just put it in your hip pocket, show up in 10 or 20 years when all hell's breaking loose, and we'll work it all out. And I say, right. well, I've been doing all this thinking. I have questions of medicine, and periodically, Cheryl, I have called up institutions to ask the questions. And right. basically, not all the time, not everybody, but basically what's happened to me enough times to have decided that this is an obstacle is that I have been stonewalled. If you're not actually dying, if you're not actually in a crisis, medicine, I'm generalizing, but it's really pretty true. Medicine by and large doesn't want to talk to you. Well, and I say, there's, and, and yes, there's the, you know, hiding it. And there's also, I just wanted, wanted to mention two deaths I've experienced. Uh, we had to bring up is it time to consider uh, letting this person go? And the medical personnel involved were quite caring um, and relieved that we brought it up. If they were relieved we brought it up, shouldn't they have been bringing it up? <laughs> you know? Um, yes. So that's yeah, also and, and, a kind of opacity, isn't it? Oh, it's hugely opaque. And, and what if now that we, what if we've educated ourselves about the intricacies of Obstacle 5, I think, or whichever one about, uh, I've closed the book, uh, about, um, and I feel like time pressured, um, the complexities of overrides to our advanced directives. So you call up yes. your local it, regional hospital where you might end up, and you say, you know what, I'd like to find out about your you policies yes. in regards to to overrides to advanced directives if we end up in the OR. And chances are they're going to clam up like a drum. As I say, what good uh, is that? Yes. So, so it's, you know, these, the, the physicians I know that are, that are um, working with this in the systems, I, I just uh, I love them so much because it's hard work. There's a lot of resistance. So yay for, yay for the people in the medical system that are also trying to tackle these things. You know, Bart, we're, we are unbelievably out of time. But I just want to say there's a lot to chew on here, and I found it useful, even as someone who thinks about these things a lot, the framework is helpful. So I hope people will go, uh, you know, get the book, and, and uh, because you can't do it in an emergency. No one's going to be able to read about this if they're in one of those situations. We've got to do this work in advance, Yes. Yes, we most certainly do. And the last thing I'll say is that people who have read it are reporting to me, both doctors and, and lay people, that, you know, it's not a real long book. It's, it's 225 pages or so, but it's 
it's a purposeful book, and it causes people to We're stop good. and reflect and think. Yes. And I love yes. hearing and that's that. a good place to end, which we which we have to do right now because we're running okay. out of time. Um, I'm sure people will go look and find out more. Next week, I'll have Daniel Kenner. His experiences with his parents supporting them to their deaths changed his life and led to his book, Room for Grace. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.